A while back, I was online skimming through various news articles, and I was really struck by the overwhelming amount of bad news there is in our world today. You notice that? I mean, just article after article of nothing but bad news. And I began to think to myself, are there any articles containing any good news? And uh, not too many that people choose to report on. There were a few, but they were few and far between. We are overwhelmed at times by bad news. Sometimes bad news affects us directly. It shows up at our doorstep, right? We experienced that yesterday, Leslie and I. If you uh, have talked to our little blonde, Edie, she's probably let you know. Talked to a lot of people, she's let them know what happened to us yesterday. But uh, we were at her soccer game, and uh, we were going back to the car, and the girls screamed, and we looked, and uh, our uh, driver's side window had been knocked out, and Leslie's purse was stolen. And uh, so you don't expect that at an 11 a.m. kid's soccer game, but that happened to us. At times, those things happen, right? Bad news in the news, and it happens to us directly, and what some people do at times when, when this happens, when horrible things happen, and when they read about horrible things, they, they question God. They say, where is God in all of this? Is he even there? Is he in control? And does he even care? Those are some questions that we answered in our passage we looked at last week, and we're going to ask and answer this question again Today, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15, we are continuing our, our Easter sermon series today by looking at Mark's account of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We are still at, at Calvary. We were there last week, and we'll be discussing this event again this week, looking at Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 41. These questions were probably being asked by Jesus' disciples and close friends as they're witnessing him being betrayed and arrested and tried and beaten and mocked and killed at Calvary. And we are going to learn in this passage today, like we learned last week, that God is very much present at Calvary. And not only is he present, some believe him to be present but powerless. We are going to see that God is present and he is very much at work, but not in the way you might think. I want you to notice a few unique ways we see God present and at work at Calvary. Notice first with me, point number one, that God is present at Calvary in his wrath. Now, your point looks a little bit different. I got a little wordy with the first point and changed it at the last minute, so just mark that out and put this in. God is present at Calvary in his wrath. Look at verse 33 of Mark 15. <clears throat> We're told, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth, Hour. Now let's stop there for just a minute. Though we often sing songs, wonderful, beautiful songs we have this morning, songs of praise about what took place at Calvary, 
We at times wear this instrument of death, the cross around our necks, and, and, and we decorate our homes and our church buildings with the cross, though this event is one of the most glorious and wonderful events in human history, it was also an extremely dark and gloomy event as well. But get this, not because God is completely absent. Some people believe that. It's not gloomy because God is gone. He's not gone. He is very much present in his wrath. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Notice first, before we get into this, that the events recorded here, they took place three hours in to the crucifixion. In Mark 15, 25, we're told that Jesus was crucified at the third hour. This was nine in the morning. So the events taking place in this passage that we're looking at today are three hours later at 12 noon. This was the time when the sun would have been at its peak. At that time when the sun would have been shining its brightest, we're told there was darkness over all the land. And it continued on for three hours. Now it is debated whether or not this is a localized darkness or a darkness over all the lit part of the world at this time. The word land in the Greek here is ge, and it refers to the surface of the earth, the dwelling place of man. Contrasted with the heavens above, you have the world below the earth. There are some extra biblical historical sources that seem to indicate that this was a universal darkness. Origen made mention of a statement by a certain Roman historian who mentioned an unusual darkness that took place at this time. Another early church father named Tertullian wrote to some pagans, and in his writing he also mentioned this unusual darkness that took place at this time. There was also a report from Pilate to Tiberius, and in the writing, it is assumed that the emperor is well aware that in all the world where the sun was to be shining at this time, it was dark. So that may very well be the case, that the whole lit part of the world from noon to three was covered in darkness while Christ is being crucified. I believe that. I believe God supernaturally turned out the sun. That right there is a miracle, folks. But why? Why why did God do this? Well, he's showing he's very much present in this situation, but for what reason? What's the meaning of the darkness? What's God trying to tell us by turning out the sun? Where we're not told by the gospel writers, no Bible writer, no New Testament writer comments on this darkness at all, but I don't believe they need to. I believe it's obvious. Throughout the Old Testament, whenever there is darkness, it is always a symbol of divine judgment. Remember the Jews in Egypt in the book of Exodus? Remember the last plague in Egypt before the death of the firstborn? What is it? It's darkness. In the book of Isaiah... Isaiah chapter 5, he predicts the coming judgment of God on Israel and he describes it as darkness and sorrow. It's not by accident that God announces the coming of Christ 
by lighting up the darkness. You remember that story, right? It's not by accident that Christ is often referred to as the light of the world. The salvation God provides is seen as light. So it makes sense that his judgment should be seen as darkness, gross darkness, deep darkness. So that darkness that takes place at noon on the day Christ is crucified is associated with divine judgment. But notice, it is not being poured out on wicked people this time, but instead on God's own Son. He is the one who is enduring God's judgment, His his punishment. He is the object of God's wrath. And we know that not just by looking at the darkness surrounding the cross and the crucifixion scene, but also through the words that Christ spoke from the cross. Look at verse 34. We're told, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now notice again the timeline here. This was the ninth hour. So there's been darkness and silence for three hours. And then Christ cries out with a loud voice in the darkness. The word used here means he screamed, he yelled, Eloi, Eloi, that's Aramaic. In Matthew it says, Eli, Eli, which is Hebrew, for my God, my God. Then he says, Lema Sabachthani, which means, why have you forsaken me? Now, before explaining what Christ means here, let me first say that the Jews standing around Jesus at the cross were familiar with this statement because Jesus is quoting Scripture. He's quoting a Psalm of David, Psalm 22, verse 1. They knew this Psalm. They had read this Psalm. They memorized it, probably chanted it, prayed it, perhaps even sung it. But Jesus is not just reciting this Psalm just to, just to say it. He is taking that verse and he is applying it to his situation and is indicating with these words that something significant is taking place at Calvary. Something that Christ has never experienced before. Something dark, something difficult that is necessary for this event to ultimately be bright and glorious. What's taking place? Christ is bearing sin. He is enduring God's wrath. Some argue that God is exiting the scene here. No, he's not. God's present everywhere. But here, he is present with his son in a way he has not been before. He is present with him in his wrath. And his wrath is being poured out on Jesus in our place. It is a truly inexplicable, unfathomable event, but a true historical event nonetheless. At this time, at the ninth hour, Jesus is at the climax of sin-bearing. Remember, we're told he bore our sin. He was made to be sin for us. He took on our sin, endured God's wrath for us, so that our sin could be forgiven and removed through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the cup, by the way, that Christ mentions when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Where he says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That cup symbolizes divine wrath and judgment. It was the Father's will that Christ drink the cup and endure his wrath. And we're told the Son went obediently and willingly doing the will of the Father. And it's that great work that provides the great salvation for us. How? How can condemned sinners be saved from God's wrath to come? Watch this. By trusting in the one who became sin and endured God's wrath for us. That's the gospel. The Lord Jesus did this. And watch this, not to make our... Heads hurt too much. I know it's still early, right? Not too early, but... Did you know that Jesus, though a man, had to be truly God to accomplish this great work? Some have asked if the sinner in an eternity of punishment can never pay the price for sin, how can Jesus in three hours receive the full eternal wrath for all sinners who believe? Here's the answer. He could receive an infinite and eternal amount of wrath because he is infinite and eternal. John MacArthur said it better than I could, so I'm going to let him say it. He said this, look at this. It is infinite wrath moved by infinite justice, releasing infinite punishment on the infinite Son who could absorb all the tortures of eternity's hell and do it in three hours. Wow. It's deep but true. And if that makes you uncomfortable a bit, knowing what Christ had to endure, if you're tempted to sort of lessen the blow, explain it away. If it makes you a little sick feeling, thinking that Christ endured that for you, that's good. You're beginning to get it. We don't just learn about the great work here. We learn all throughout Scripture about this great work. Isaiah 53, we're told that Christ would be pierced for our transgressions. He'll be crushed for our iniquities, and it's God that does the crushing, we learn in Isaiah 53 as well. We're told that God will lay on Christ our iniquities. Romans 4.25, we're told that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says that Christ died for our sins. Galatians 3.13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we're told that God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, in Jesus. Jesus did not simply die for sins. He bore our sins. He endured God's wrath in our place. Now, I need to say this while we talk about this. While it is true that Christ bore our sin. He himself never became a sinner. Don't confuse that, okay? 
Though he was engulfed in sin, became sin, made to be sin, endured God's wrath, he remained sinless. He had no desire for that sin. We see that in his statement in verse 34. When he bore our sin, is forsaken by the Father, he cries out for the Father. He has no longing for that sin at Calvary. He longs for the Father himself. So, Though Christ bore sin, he was made to be sin. He was without sin, did not have a desire for sin. So we see the cross is a dark and gloomy event because at the cross, Christ was made to be sin by God for us. God's wrath was poured out on his son. Christ was crushed at Calvary by God so that God might not have to crush us. Gospel. Now the reason why it's a dark and gloomy event is because the Christ, the King of glory, is mocked by the ones He came to save. Look at verses 35 and 36. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, He is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. So in verse 35, they are responding to Jesus' words. They, they probably knew what he said. I mean, they knew Scripture, right? The Jewish people did. They, they knew about Psalm 22. They knew that he had cried out to God, Eli, Eloi. But jokingly, they said, Oh, he's calling out to Elijah, which was Elias. They were saying jokingly, oh, listen, he's calling for the prophet Elijah. Let's see if Elijah shows up to help him. No, in verse 36, it seems as if an act of kindness is, is done by giving him some relief when he's given a sponge with sour wine to wet his mouth and lips. They also mockingly, jokingly say this statement. Let's see if Elijah will show up and take him down. I read that uh, there were many Jews in this day who believed that because Elijah had ascended into heaven without dying, many believed he would also return to rescue those suffering from great trouble. To support this, they misunderstood, but they used Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, that says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they've taken Jesus' words, where he is, Cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which they knew that is what he said. And they said, he's calling out to Elijah. He's seeking his help. Let's see if he'll show up and save Jesus. More mockery. They are, they are mocking Jesus, saying he's crying out for salvation for himself. When the truth of the matter is, he is crying out to God indicating that salvation is being accomplished and being made available through what he is enduring at the cross. He was not crying out for salvation for himself. He's laying his life down to accomplish our salvation. And it's important to mention here that while God is crushing his son, he is providing rescue for sinners like you and me through his wrath. We often see God show up, his wrath show up and his deliverance at once. We see that 
in Egypt, right? With the Jewish people, his, his, his wrath is being poured out on Pharaoh and the Egyptian people while he is providing deliverance for his people out of Egyptian bondage. It's taking place here. His wrath is being poured out upon his son while at the same time he's providing a way for rescue for us believers through Jesus. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. That leads us right into our second point. I know that was a long first point. It's an important one though, isn't it? Point number two, We'll move quickly. God is not only present at Calvary in his wrath, but he is present at Calvary, accomplishing and providing salvation. Look at verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Again, dark and gloomy event. It ends with the death of God's Messiah. Here we're told he cried out and breathed his last. What did he say? We're told by John in John 19, 30, he says, to Telestai, it is finished. After that, we're told he, by John that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Matthew tells us after crying out, Jesus yielded up his spirit. Folks, get this. Though Jesus' death is sad, it's dark, it's gloomy, it's not tragic. Christ saying to Telestai, before laying his life down, is not giving a cry of defeat here. He's not saying, I'm finished, I'm done for. He's saying, it is finished. The work that God sent me to do, it's completed, it's accomplished, it's done. It's a done deal. It's finished. Then notice what he does next. This is so good. Mark tells us he breathed his last. Matthew tells us he yielded up his spirit. John says he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He didn't jerk and, and kill over all of a sudden, unaware. John says he bowed his head. The Greek word used here means to lay or gently pillow your head. And he gave up his spirit. When Jesus had accomplished the work the Father sent him to accomplish. He gently pillowed his head, breathed his last, and gave up his life. Remember, he said in John 10, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. Listen, folks, no man ultimately killed Jesus. Now, in a way, they did, and they're held responsible for it, right? But ultimately, Christ laid his life down on his own terms, by his own power, and he did not lay it down. He did not give it up until all things were finished that he was sent to do. But it's still a sad scene, isn't it? Dark and gloomy. At the cross, Jesus was made sin by God for us. He was crushed by God for us, mocked by the ones he came to save. Until the time he bowed his head and gave up his life. Yet though that's the case, though the cross is dark and gloomy, it's also a great and wonderful and joyous event. Through this great work, God accomplishes through his great son, salvation is made available for all who believe. Notice what happens next. Look at verse 38. This is good. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Let's stop there for a minute. Here we have more evidence of the fact that God is very much present and very much at work. The events around Calvary, right? And in a mighty way. Notice what takes place in the inward most sacred part 
of the temple, right outside the, the, the most holy place, at the entrance of the holy of holies. Mark tells us that the curtain that divides the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two completely from top to bottom. Any student of Scripture knows, you studied the Old Testament, you know, in the middle of the, the temple, God had instructed that there be an inner sanctuary that had be erected during the time of the tabernacle and, and built during the time of the temple. And in this inner sanctuary was the, was the earthly dwelling place of God in a very special, very unique way. And there was a curtain that hung outside of this place that completely covered the entrance into this place. No man was allowed to enter into this place except for one man, the high priest, one time a year. He had to go in and get out quickly. And he went in once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer a blood sacrifice on the altar for his sins and for the sins of his people. So this place was where God's presence resided on earth in a very special way, and that veil or curtain that, that, that covered this place reminded everyone that there was a great separation that had taken place between God and man after the fall. And the high priest entering in year after year into this place was a reminder to those looking on that man's sins had not yet been taken care of. There was still this great divide between God and man. But when Christ died, all that changed. That curtain was ripped from top to bottom, which is significant, right? Notice it was not ripped from bottom to top because the only way to be made right with God, the only way to have that relationship with God restored is if God provides it, and he did, through his son, Jesus Christ, who became one of us. It was not made available by man, it was made available by the God-man, the Lord Jesus. Which is why, when Jesus died, God took his finger and ripped that veil right down the middle from top to bottom. Think about this. This event took place at Passover, so at this time, in this place, it would have been filled with Jews from the area and pilgrims from all over. Can, can you imagine that? They're, they're in the temple. Then all of a sudden, without warning, the curtain is torn in two. And at once, everyone in that temple is able to look right into the inner sanctuary, right inside the most sacred part of the temple. God is present, folks. You see that. He is at work. He is showing us through Christ's death, through the tearing of the temple curtain, that through Christ's accomplished work at Calvary on the cross, the way into his presence has been made available once again, like it was in the very good beginning, but it's better now because it's permanent. There are other events happen, not recorded here. I'll mention one. There's a supernatural earthquake. We're told by Matthew, Matthew 27, 51, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. I believe this miracle here is closely associated with the other. I think it's for those 
around the cross, gathered there at Calvary, right? I think that God is, is simply drawing attention to the fact that this is an earth-shaking, earth-shattering event. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. Salvation has come. A way has been opened up for man to be made right with God, be at peace with Him, be forgiven of sin and restored to God through this great work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to hear more about the details of that event, get online, fellowshipjacksonville.com, listen to our sermon series from last year on Mark's account. He goes into more detail on that. But the point I, I want you to see here is that, that salvation has come to Calvary. It's come to the world in the person and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only is, is God at work accomplishing our salvation through Christ, but he is also applying this great work at Calvary's doing it, right? We talked about it last week when we looked at Luke's account when he tells us of the thief at the cross, on the cross, right? But, but there's also faith being demonstrated by Romans as well. Look at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Here we have another account, I believe, of a transformed centurion. There are several centurions mentioned in the gospel accounts and in the book of Acts that are shown in a, a, a positive light. Remember the great faith of the Roman centurion that Christ highlights in Matthew chapter 8. You're going to read about that this week in your study guide. And also remember Cornelius. We talked about him when we studied through the book of Acts in Acts chapter 10, who was a God-fearer, who has this encounter with Peter, becomes a committed Christ follower. And here we have the great confession of another centurion. Remember, a centurion was a leader of a hundred Roman soldiers. And this centurion here, we get the picture, he has been with Jesus all day, keeping watch over him with the other soldiers. We're, we're told in Matthew that he saw the earthquake. He wouldn't have seen, again, what took place in the temple, but he was watching, he was observing what was taking place around the cross. He was appointed to keep watch over Jesus. He had probably been with Christ throughout most of his trial. He heard the accusations made about him, watched him suffer, heard his cries from Calvary, witnessed the three-hour darkness, and again, the, the earthquake after his death. And this man is just convinced. Jesus is who he claimed to be. Truly, surely, he says, this man was the Son of God. And notice he's not the only one who says it. We're told in Matthew's account that the other soldiers with him were filled with awe, and they all said, truly, this was the Son of God. So these unbelieving Roman soldiers, I believe, were changed by the cross. They responded in faith. Folks, God is at work here accomplishing providing, applying the finished work of Christ for all who believe. We're also told that God was at work at Calvary through the believing women as well. That leads us to our final point. Notice, God is present at Calvary in His faithful followers. Look at verses 40 and 41. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, 
and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and they, there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. The women at the cross are often overlooked, but they should not be. They are a major emphasis in the gospel accounts of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. They are major players in this story. The women mentioned here had been following Jesus for some time, had ministered to him during these dark, difficult hours. We're told here that, that they were looking on from a distance, but we know from the other accounts that these women do not respond like most. Most of Jesus' disciples, minus John, they do not move further away from Christ, but closer to him at Calvary. The women mentioned here are Mary Magdalene. Many of you know her. She was a devoted Christ follower, one of the first to witness his resurrection. Mary, the mother of James, not James and John, but James the younger, one of the twelve, and Joseph. She is also the wife of Cleopas. We learned that from John 19. She, like Mary Magdalene, never leave the Lord's side. She will be with him at his burial as well. We also have the mother of the sons of Zebedee, known here as Salome. She is mentioned with Jesus on multiple occasions. Many believe her to be the sister of Mary, who is mentioned in John 19, 25. She, again, is the mother of James and John, which would make them cousins to Jesus if Salome was Mary's sister. She's one of the ones who helps prepare Jesus' body for burial. Devoted followers of Jesus, who because of their presence with Jesus, through thick and thin, no matter what, they're used in a mighty way by God throughout this salvation story. We see God's presence in and through these women. They are eyewitnesses to Christ's death. They, they help prepare his body for burial. They become some of the first witnesses to and for the resurrection. Why? Why were they the first? Because they were there. They were always there. They were faithful. Did they have their doubts? Of course. But they remain by Jesus' side. Boy, lots to be learned from the women, right? May that be said of us, believers. When times get tough, we don't understand why things are happening the way they're happening. May we remain close to Jesus no matter what. Faithful. Clinging to him. Looking to him. Following hard after him no matter what. That's what they did. And as a result, they, they got to witness him work in unbelievable ways. And they were used as great instruments in the salvation story. For more on that, you have to come back next week. All right? We're going to talk about the burial next week. And then be sure and come the week after for Resurrection Sunday. We talk about Mark's account of the resurrection. But before we end today, I, I want to I just leave you with one question. What's going to be your response today? You heard the message. You've been here the past two weeks. You've heard this entire account, of, account from Mark of Christ's death and God's work in the midst of it and why he laid his life down and the work he accomplished for our salvation. What's going to be your response? 
What say you? Maybe you're here today. You've been impacted by what has been said from God's Word. What will your response be? If you have not responded to this great work, if you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, if you have not repented of your sin and looked to Christ and trusted in Him, made Him Lord of your life, I I urge you, I plead with you today, respond like the women at Calvary, respond like the centurion and his soldiers, the thief on the cross. Forsake your sin. Give your life up and over to Jesus today. Make Him Lord of your life today. Trust in Him alone for your salvation. Look to Him, believe in Him. Place your faith alone in His person and work alone for salvation today and be saved. Let's pray.